You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even again to Making Data Simple. This is where we simply talk about anything and everything. I have a distinguished guest today. It's Mr. Guy Taylor. Guy Taylor is the head of data and data-driven intelligence at NedBank. Um, And he's also, thankfully, a a fabulous partner at IBM. And I see you, Guy, in terms of the discussion that we've had in the past, is is essentially an industry technologist and an industry influencer. But how would you describe yourself, if you would? Oh, I, thank you very much. I think that's very kind of you. I think the, the reason to be distinguished is because you put a mister in front of my name. <laughs> um, I, 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 have, I have for years described myself as a, as a social technologist. Um, I described myself as a social technologist long before the, the term data scientist came about. Uh, I then described myself as a data scientist for a little bit, what, uh, little bit of time. Um, but now I'm, I'm just a guy that, that is kind of interested in in the data space and uh, kind of get to, to look at it around me. Uh, I think your, your words are much kinder than any title I describe to myself. Uh, so no. thank you. I, look, I, I think um, I'm, I'm impressed with, it, with everything you do. So let me, would you elaborate on your role really quick at NetBank in terms of the head of data and, and intelligence? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I tend to think of my role as being head of data and data-driven intelligence as really being in charge of, of helping the enterprise with decision-making. So I take care of, of two cross-enterprise teams. Uh, those two teams are business intelligence, uh, you know, which is the standard business intelligence as we know and love it, and then an advanced analytics team, which, which tends to be uh, much more data science-driven. So the way I think about these teams is that I'm, I'm in charge of decisioning. I'm in charge of quality of decisioning. From a business intelligence perspective, that becomes human decisioning. And from an advanced analytics perspective, it becomes uh, machine decisioning. That's a lot. I'm going to dive down a lot here. <laughs> hey, but first of all, you're in Johannesburg, South Africa. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. That is absolutely correct. So uh, I work for a company called NetBank. NetBank is one of the four largest banks in South Africa. Uh, we've been in the market many, many years. Uh, and yeah, it's, a, it's a fun game. Are you originally from South Africa? I am. I am. I don't talk like a lot of other South Africans, but uh, a lot of other South Africans don't talk like a lot of other South Africans. We've got 11 official languages in South Africa. Uh, so, you know, in, in a, what, we're the largest, largest population of people with 11 different languages. It's a, it's a bit of a strange, strange hodgepodge group. Wow. 11 dialects. Is there a reason for that? Is that something that the, the from a culture standpoint, you've that the, the South Africa has come to preserve or intentionally work to preserve? I mean, how does that come about? Yes. Uh, what happened is South, South Africa is built on a, a history of, um, of colonization, you know, but both from a North African perspective, then the Dutch arrived, then the English arrived, uh, and then through, through liberation in, in kind of 1994, where we, we made massive strides to, to kind of undo the sins of the past when we took a look around, recognized all the people that were around here, and went, well, we need to accommodate a lot of people. Uh, how, how, do we, how do we start with that? And one of the big pieces of starting was to say, well, 
Now, these are the languages of the people that are, are now um, home to this country. Look, um, so this is a long-distance podcast, and, and I have to tell you, I have think almost been everywhere around the world, except I have not been to South Africa, nor I've been, nor have I been to the continent. So it's a huge miss for me. I hear South Africa is absolutely beautiful. Can you you can confirm that, can't you? I can absolutely confirm it. It is one of the most beautiful <laughs> countries I've been to. I've got friends that live across the world, many of which are, are wanting to come home because they miss the beauty of the of the country. I, we've got so many different landscapes, so many different terrains. Um, you know, we've got a lot of natural splendor. If you, if you want, if you're looking for space, wide open spaces, natural beauty, South Africa is absolutely the place for that. So I know we got to get into the technical discussion, but I got a couple more here. If I go to South Af- Africa, what is the, the 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 handful of things that I can't miss? I mean, you've got to do this. I mean, it, it should be like a bucket list type of deal. You know, it, it's a funny thing, Al. It's a funny thing because I suspect that when you start asking the locals what you should do, you're going to get very different answers to what you ask a, a tour guide. But the absolute thing that cannot be missed is going on a safari. So South Africa's game is absolutely incredible. Um, you know, lions, rhinos, elephants are the kind of the big creatures of the bush. It, it, is, it is an incredible experience being out there in the wild with, with those creatures. Cape Town is also one of the, absolutely the most beautiful, beautiful cities in the world. Uh, South Africa's got an incredible wine. Uh, going through the garden routes, going up to the farm, uh, wine farms is 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 an, it's an amazing thing to do with your your weekend, your time. So you just do this for lunch. <laughs> yeah. Get out, go out of some you first, drink some wine. I was gonna say you absolutely can't miss having lunch with me. Um, but you know, oh. that, you know, wine's tied into that, right? I think we. I think I need a customer visit in my future. Wine and safari, because I was hopeful you were going to actually say that. I've got two things that are absolutely on my bucket list. One is I want to climb Kilimanjaro, uh, nice. so I've done it. And secondly, I want to go on a safari. And I'd like to do it at the same time if I could. That makes the uh, world of sense. <laughs> so, and, but I didn't even know the wine existed. And I'm a huge wine drinker, so like that's the trifecta. No, the, the, the wine's amazing. South African wine is amazing. It, it will put to shame most other countries' wine. All right, I, I, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to figure this out. I've just added something else to the list. Uh, by the way, good news. I don't know if this is good news or not. I was reading just today that Facebook wants to uh, circle Africa with an undersea data cable. I don't. I don't think that'll affect you any. But uh, I, I guess you know they're trying to give everybody in Africa access to Facebook. I think that's the bottom line. I don't know. No, it, it is good news. I mean, one of the one of the side effects of being as far away from from the rest of the first world as, as we are is, is that the cost of data in South Africa is probably one of the most expensive in the world. Um, it's, the cost of data here is absolutely incredibly high and it leads to huge social problems too. You know, obviously you want to democratize uh, education, democratize access to information. Uh, these are a massive social struggles that we still face. So can, can, you, can you dive into that a little bit? Why, the, why is the cost of data just the access of data? Is that what we're talking about here? So, so it's, it's actually, I, I don't know if it is that interesting, but I can do a quick history lesson. Up until when, up until the mid-90s, uh, all of our communication was run through a central parastatal state-owned entity. Um, you know, there's this massive artifact that was built out of uh, the apartheid era where the state pretty much controlled everything. 
And, and part of the reason that you wanted a state-owned entity is that we were under very heavy um, copyright and information laws. So what happened was a bunch of mavericks came in uh, and literally bought their own, own piping out back in the day. Uh, and then that piping was split out and, and, and turned into privately owned, uh, privately owned piping. Uh, then the network operators came in. Uh, the network operators uh, were the, sorry, I, I need to check my language here because I'm not quite sure the language is the same, but the network operators are essentially the cell phone providers, so uh, mobile providers, and there are still only a handful of those mobile providers that give access to data today. Uh, so there's, there's a bit of a, uh, what's it called, oligopoly, uh, you know, polymonopoly piece. You know, there's a handful of players in the space, uh, but essentially it's still a pretty controlled industry. So essentially, your, your, your internet is metered to get that data, so is what it's, you're saying. It, it's not so much as metered, it's that it's costed. So we still pay the prices because uh, because we have to. We, we don't have choices. And so you're, you're you're longing for the open choices, some more democratization, I guess, of uh, uh, access, and and that'll that'll lower prices. Absolutely. So I, what I don't want to do is give the impression that we are under some kind of um, tyrannical dystopian uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. state of data data ownership, because that's not the case. It is just very expensive to get the data. Yeah, I got it. No, that's good information. And his story is always interesting to me. So look, now I'm going to jump into you a little bit. Um, if I go out to LinkedIn and I look at Mr. Uh, Guy Taylor, there's a couple of interesting things that stuck out, and I thought this would kind of uh, lead into you know what NetBank is doing and how where you're leading them, et cetera. But you said you start off, which is very interesting. And you also mentioned when we started the the the, the podcast here, you, you term yourself a social technologist, which is very interesting to me as well. But anyway, you start off on LinkedIn, you say, through understanding people, cultures, technology, and systems, we can begin analyzing and predicting how individuals, both consumers and staff, will act and how to influence their behavior. You also quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast by, by Peter Drucker, very, very famous quote. And, and then kind of end with, my experience is a strange mix, but it gives me the opportunity to see culture as a technology and technology as an uh, enabler. You've, you've got to drill down a little bit on that uh, further than your intro there, because that's fascinating oh, to me. Okay, so uh, I mean... <laughs> you didn't think I was going to go the there. The problem is where to start, right? The problem is where to start. So uh, I kind of grew up in, a, in a, as I said, a strange mix. I kind of grew up in a, in a background which, which is kind of steeps in both behavioral psychology and uh, and in, in technology. So whilst growing up, my, my, my studies were mostly from a psychological perspective, but um, but I grew up in a way that really drew me towards technology. So I, I was playing I was playing with Linux when when I was a, a very young boy, um, and you know in the very very early versions of of Red Hat, um, and that kind of led into a natural path of, of going down into and just getting more and more interested in computer science, but at the same time really getting interested in, in what makes people tick, what makes, uh, what makes systems tick, what makes cultures tick. You know, th these are all the, the kind of the, the moving parts of, of humanity and how we interact together. So you've got these two really kind of disparate, disparate systems. 
uh, one of which is very technical and the other one is very social. And it was only in, it was only in a probably 2000, 2000X where suddenly those two sides just kind of clicked for me. And they clicked in a way that was kind of fascinating because I realized that what I was doing from a human perspective, from a behavioral perspective, was looking for measurement, looking for the ways that people uh, interfaced with each other. And the artifacts of those, of those pieces, the artifacts of behavior, the artifacts of communication, all came down to, to data. And then the other side kind of kicks in from a technology perspective, from an infrastructural perspective to say, hang on, suddenly I can persist this data, I can, I can measure this data, I can analyze this data, I can start doing things like predict this data uh, with this data. But, but the whole system just kind of clicked into a, a single piece for me in, in the mid-2000s. So you, you've essentially made data and technology hip through your own way in terms of uh, integrating it with, with culture and, and, and like you said, be behavioral, I don't know how to describe it, uh, but providing that beha behavioral perspective. If, if that's the case, then um, what's your take on all this, the, the social world that we live in today? You think it's a good thing? You think it's a bad thing? I mean, you talk about culture, a behavior of how, you know, like our phones have taken over our lives and, and, and the data they're in. Uh, I gotta believe you got a perspective on that too. There's a wonderful quote I, I once heard, and I, I don't quite know who to attribute it to, but the quote is, uh, we shape our tools, and then our tools shape us. And I, I think that the world that we live in is, is a fascinating, fascinating thing around how our tools have really shaped us and the way that we interact with it. I think we've become very reliant on our technology. I, I think that my, my own personal perspective has become very much based around how can we be acutely aware of what we're doing with our tooling. Um, you know, a couple of years back, I read a book by, by a guy by the name of Cal Newport. Now, I believe that Cal Newport is a Stanford ComSci lecturer, uh, but his, his book was called Deep Work. And his book is essentially a thesis on how we've stopped taking the time to think deeply about problems. And a, a large contributor to that is, is mostly the way that we are, are, are set up for interrupt-driven work now. You know, set up to, to kind of hit our phones the second that, that we were bored. We, we were set up to, to get notifications pushed to us. I, I find myself more and more kind of becoming this, this uh, neo-Luddite neo where I, I absolutely want to use my technology, but I want to use it consciously and with, with a lot of self-awareness. And that means stripping out time from, from reaching for my phone after after work hours are there. Uh, it means that you know I, I'm actively and, and consciously looking for the particular things that I want to be reading. Uh, I'm moving back, to, I've got little kids, and I've been moving back to paperback books, partly because uh, there's, a, there's a strong start and a finish to them. They're not this infinite pool of information where I, I need to go deeper, but also because it's an artifact that my, my kids can see around the house. And when they see me reading, they see me reading a particular thing rather than just staring to the screen of my iPad. So making conscious decisions around how we use our technologies is, I think, incredibly important. Uh, I think it's something that we don't do enough. You know, uh, it's funny you say that. I think there's something to that, and good for you for practicing that discipline. My youngest daughter is a huge book reader, and she will only read real books. 
Uh, she will not do it on a Kindle or otherwise. And no coincidence, she she's read like 24 books already this year or something like that. It's crazy. I, I mean, she just she's reading all the time. I mean, that's what she loves. But it's all, you know, it, it's all tangible books. It's it's nothing uh, online because I think she likes the start and the stop, and then she goes back and reads it again. Uh, she's something yeah. else. So if you really want to learn, I think there is something to be said for that, and not be distracted with whatever's going on in the world. To your point. Anyway, um, so look, uh, <laughs> that's fascinating. I think we could we could probably spend a full podcast just drilling down further into to some of those themes. But what I know from you is that you head up data science teams and you've done this across FinTech, you've done it across EdTech, um, and I'd like to get your perspective on how they align, how they are, are different, and essentially what do you think about data and AI therein? Yeah. yeah. So, oh, I, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, I, I think in many ways the, the the financial sector, when it comes to measuring things, actually has a lot easier than than the educational sector. Uh, for for one thing, finance you you're you're measuring something that's that's quite tangible. You're measuring the artifact of behavior. I mean, going back to that that, that discussion around behavior earlier, where in in the educational system you're trying to measure the knowledge that somebody has, and Trying to measure understanding is, is quite a complex thing. Trying to measure understanding is, is not just about, you know, does this person pass this test? It's, it's, it's a measurement of something that is not, not evident necessarily. And when we're talking about data, that data becomes the evidence of that thing. Um, so it, it becomes a lot trickier to try and get out the data that you're actually trying to measure uh, in those situations. The other piece of this, which becomes quite quite complex, is that from a financial perspective, you're measuring those data points over a much longer period of time. I, sorry, when I'm saying when I'm talking about period of time, I'm talking about frequency of data points. So it's not that you're measuring over 10 years; it's more that you will have a particular data point, and then in you know a month's time, that salary is going to land again. Those those are kind of the deltas for for the month, where your educational pieces you're measuring much more frequently much much more frequently and you know within within seconds uh, of, of pieces so they're very different worlds as far as, as as far as any of their analysis goes at the end of the day you're still kind of you're still interfacing with people uh, you're still interfacing with uh, with how they're interacting with the world uh, but it, it's very different because on from an educational perspective, you're interfacing with their inner world, whereas from a financial perspective, you're interfacing with how they act within the, the real world. Uh, so, so are the concepts and the models much the same? Uh, they're just inwardly versus outward, or? So it, the, the, the models are pretty much the same. I mean, I, I think I think there's this there's this fascinating thing in in data science, which is that we get very hung up on the models, where the reality is is that you know. We use pretty much the same models for most of the things. I, 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 I'm a little bit against the, the algorithm porn that, that uh, data science has created uh, today. I think it's, it's much more important that we focus on the data and we focus on asking the right questions. I, I think that feature engineering is a much more important piece of data science work 
than um, than say the model the model per se. I know that gets a little bit weird when you start talking about things like uh, self-driving cars uh, and, and bigger systems like that. But for kind of everyday data science work, I, I think you know diving into the data is is the key. So when you say um, focusing on the data, are you talking cleanliness? Are you talking a the corpus of data to make sure you have the the right um, uh, corpuses of data and access to data. I mean, what are we talking about when you say it's much more important to focus on the data? Yeah, yeah. so I, I think this opens up a world of conversation because it is about data cleanliness as as a single as a single dimension to that. It is about access to the data as a single dimension to that. But it, I think one of the pieces that we are, are are doing a very poor job of is really diving into the data and understanding the data and, and taking that understanding and modeling it. So when I think about a model, uh, I think about a, a predictive model. That model, if I'm breaking this down, that model is a map of reality. But it's not actually a map of reality. It's, it's, it's a map of a couple of abstractions of reality. So when I talk about a model of being a map of reality, what I mean is, I am taking a very high granularity view of what my data source is telling me. And that data source is inherently biased. The, the data that it's capturing is inherently biased. The culture within which that data exists is inherently biased. Now we have all these biases, and I think it's very easy to apply a multi data without taking into account the biases, because I think we do that at a human level um, I think it's very natural just to assume that the data reflects reality. This is an interesting conversation. Uh, and, and before I ask you a follow-on question, do you consider yourself a data scientist, a data engineer, a little bit of both? Or where, you know, I guess what's the, what's the answer to that question? And um, just for our listeners, what is what is the discipline which you originally studied? Yeah, so I, the, the discipline originally study is, is that uh, behavioral psychology piece. Mm -hmm. uh, I then fleshed that out with, with computer science. Uh, the, the discipline which I am involved in, I consider to be data science, but there is a huge part of data engineering around that. There's a huge part of data architecture around that. Um, I, I'm very much a, I guess, what, what you would call a T-shaped person. Uh, my depth probably goes into the data engineering pieces uh, far more than than the data science pieces. But uh, yeah, I, I guess I, I've I've become a data science generalist. Well, so the, the, but the interesting thing about that, the reason I ask that question is one, I mean, um, I think you're just your skilling and it provides for that unique unique social behavior, social technologist as you describe yourself. But then going into the data scientists, when I hear you talk about, it, a lot of times I talk with data scientists. And the last thing that they really want to do is mess with the data. They want to get on with the models and, uh, and get on with the statistics and the, and the, the quote-unquote fun stuff. Um, and, but they, they get upset, and we're you know, here at IBM trying to help them get to that data clean, cleanliness faster, which takes about 80% of their time today. But it almost feels like you would, uh, you know, you respect the data and you find value and actually uh, are intrigued. I don't know what the words I want to stand for. You, you want to map reality within the data, be able to find those biases. So it sounds like you actually don't mind getting into the data, lifting up the hood, 
and, and working on it so you can make sure that you get the right business outcomes ultimately. Absolutely. I mean, at, at the end of the day, that's what we're doing, right? At the end of the day, we're, we're trying to let me take the we out of this. At the end of the day, the hill that I'm going to die on is, is, is a hill of creating sustainability in, in machine learning and sustainability in, in data science. And there, there is a, I fear that we as an industry are doing a massive disservice to ourselves by focusing on the wrong things. Uh, getting models in production is important. Managing those models in production is important. Managing the bias in those models is important. Managing the fact that we're actually trying to map reality, which is actually what we're trying to do, and not just play with sexy algorithms, um, is important. At the end of the day, the algorithms give us an interface into the data that help us understand the data better. But if we are just applying an abstraction onto that data, uh, we don't actually know what we're doing. So l let me talk about biases real quick because it's just, um, what's the word I want to use? It's, it's kind of front and center right now. Um, here at IBM, and I'm responsible for our build, deploy, and manage products around AI, which is Watson Studio, watching the machine learning and watching open scale. And a lot of times um, when we're talking open scale, what it does is it detects bias, it drives explainability. And, you know, in terms of return on investment, the, um, you know, it, it allows you to use tools in, in I, I would say maybe three to five times reduction in your time to market to get, to get it to time to market. Right. And then it also improves models because it, you know, walks through the, the models, like, I don't know, hundreds of percentage points. But I, I'll be honest with you, Guy, I don't, not all the clients get it. Not all, it doesn't always click. So my, my question to you is, how is it best to, to sell that bias? I mean, you talk about it a lot. I mean, because you're right, everything we have is innately biased. So You've got to clean up the data, which includes cleaning up this bias. And we're all biased, and the people that are biased are cleaning up the bias. So the question is, is how can I, as, as you know, being responsible for these technologies, better sell that and drive the return on investment to clients so they can re really see it? Because it sounds like that you've got a good handle on it. So uh, oh, I, think, I think the big way that I've got my head around selling that is that we tend to view the bias problem through a lens of social bias when we talk about bias in machine learning. And that's partly because we, we've, we've learned to talk about it through particular use cases and particular examples that lend itself to social bias. So what I mean by this is some of the biggest narratives around bias in machine learning tend to be around how uh, you should be very careful about how you train models on, say, lending based on uh, race or, or uh, proxies for race, as an example, say address, etc. So th those are some of the, the narratives that we have in our space when we talk about bias. And it's very easy to, to get sucked into that because it's a very human and, and a very, um, very emotional discussion to, and it's very easy for us to get sucked into that discussion. Uh, and I think that is an important discussion, but it's also not the only area that bias exists. Bias exists in any data that you're feeding into any model where the data is going to skew the, the direction of the model into a particular way. And what we're talking about really is uh, 
uh, is the information gain in the data going to skew the model in a particular direction? If the answer to that is yes, you want to know that. You want to know that to make the model better. You want to know that to understand what is actually happening. So I mean, let me, let me step back uh, and talk about this in software development terms. In software development, we have very good tools to manage uh, our other tooling. You know, we have good monitoring tools, we've got good debugging tools, we've got good ways to create observability into the system. We do not have that in machine learning. Uh, and, and one of the pieces that we need to create observability in is bias. And it's not just the, um, not just the human stuff. If there is a system that is creating bias in another system, we need to understand that too. So it, the, the, the way that I think about talking to business about these problems is to take out the human element and not create, not pitch it as a, um, not pitch it as a, you know, we need to be nice to other people type problem. It's not nice to other people. I understand there are actually real social issues there, uh, but it is around business value and business problems at the end of the day too. So what you're saying, if I could repeat it, is we tend to be really focused on social biases, which, you know, deservedly so, but there's also just simple bias that it will skew your, skew your model, and we need to be looking at data in that fashion regardless of the social biases uh, that we tend to be focused on. Absolutely. And you know what? You might say, I see this data skewing my model, uh, but that's fine because I understand that that data is important to be skewing my model. But letting that model be skewed by default is a very different discussion to I have awareness of what's going on. Fantastic. Hey, I'd like to ask, we always end the podcast with what I call lightning round. Some of the questions are odd or just to have some fun. People like the crazy questions. We get to know Mr. Uh, uh, Guy Taylor. Uh, I hope your game. I'd, li I'd like to ask you a, a few questions. I'll start off easy, and then we'll get a little bit, a little bit interesting. Is that okay? Lightning round it is. <laughs> um, let me see here. Which one do I want to start uh, start on? Uh, one thing is, I know you you've spent a lot of time in startups, and you seem to be orientated toward uh, entrepreneurial firms. Is there something about the size or the dynamic around these firms that attracts you? I, mean, what is I, think, I think it absolutely is dynamic. I, I think there's something wonderful working with a bunch of really smart guys just getting things done. Uh, I, I think you know, a lot of the things that, that happen naturally in much larger corporations uh, where the systems get in the way don't get in the way. They are absolutely downsides to it, and uh, I, I'm very happy working in the, in, in the large enterprise that I am in. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, startups are fun. What are... Um some of the common obstacles that you've personally encountered with some of the, the businesses uh, that you've been a part of that you've had to overcome? Uh, maybe it's that culture uh, that you talked about earlier. But The, the biggest obstacle I've had to learn to overcome is uh, people coming into the conversation, execs coming into the conversation, business coming into the conversation. It tends to go something like this. It tends to go, we want to use AI. And I go, okay, cool. What do you want to use it for? And they go, well, what can you use it for? Go, well, well, what do you want to use it for? They go, well, what can you use it for? Uh, well, what do you want to use it for? And there's this loop that kind of occurs because I know that ML is just a tool. Um, they don't know how to apply the tool to the business problems that they have. 
I do know how to apply the tool, tool to, the, to the business problems that they have. So, you know, there's, there's a, a chasm that I've learned to cross over time, but that's, that's probably the most common narrative I've had uh, in, in describing, you know, my, my job for the last couple of years. Well, what do you think that is, though? Isn't that crazy? Because I follow the same thing. It's like, it's like people are drinking the Kool-Aid and they've got to get into AI just because everybody else is doing it, but we're forgetting to start with a problem statement. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think it's natural. I think it happens. I, I think we do it with everything. I think we do it with Bitcoin. I think we do it with ML. I think we've done it with uh, VR. I think we've done it with um, uh, augmented reality. I think we've done it with, with all the, the cool things. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You know, we need to go back to business principles. You know, what are we trying to achieve? And if we, we don't know what we're trying to achieve, then it's a very different conversation. What we should be saying is, guy, explain to me how ML works. Explain to me, given my business, where you could see some examples of what ML could do. And it's, it's, it's very different saying, I need to learn more about something so I know how to apply it than saying, I need to use this thing. Yeah, good advice. Uh, what is the most, here's one, I think I've already answered this, but I'm going to see if I can get a different answer. What's the most interesting thing about you that we wouldn't learn on a resume alone? Uh, I'm a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. <laughs> Say that again? <laughs> I, I'm a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. I, uh, I, I, I was a mixed martial arts fighter for many years of my youth. So does that mean that uh, don't cross ways with you? <laughs> no, it, 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 it really doesn't. It, really doesn't. <laughs> it sounds like it does. <laughs> wow, that's what, do you still practice? Uh, yeah, I do. I don't get nearly as much time as, as, as I'd like, but, but I, I still do. A couple of, couple of sessions in the week. Now, do you practice because of the discipline itself? I mean, to be good at it, or do you practice it for more uh, just the exercise? element no i think over time it becomes more of a i i think i think at some point you you cross over it from being a craft to to it being your your daily meditation it, it's you know it yeah there, there's something wow. there's something really cathartic in the practice i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to look it up and see what i'm up against here very nice so what do you do for, outside of the safari and the wine drinking what do you do for fun in south africa what you go to <laughs> Well, I've I've got a little kid, so so a lot of my a lot of my fun is spending time with them. Uh, a lot of my fun is 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 reading. Um, you know, I, I I like to I like to spend time with my family. Uh, it's uh, you know that, that that that's kind of me in a nutshell. So speaking of kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, I I have no idea. I have no idea, but I've got a lot of time still. So you know, maybe I. Can... <laughs> And and since you're reading, what are you reading? I mean, what are you reading right now? And, and what I guess I'd take that a little bit further. I'd, I'd ask it in three different ways. You you answer either one or all of them. What are you reading today? How do you learn? And maybe what is one of the best recommendations you could you could give the audience here in terms of uh, uh, something to read? Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. So I I'm actually just putting down a book uh, which, which I haven't really been enjoying called, uh, called uh, The Billion Dollar Whale, which is a, about a guy who kind of ripped off uh, the Malaysian, Malaysian government for, for a whole bunch of money, um, uh, which, yeah, I, I didn't really get into it. So I'm switching up to another book, which I, I was reading uh, called Radical Acceptance, uh, which is a kind of a Buddhist, Buddhist uh, view on, on, on acceptance. 
some of the most productive texts I've read, I, I brought up Cal Newport's uh, deep work earlier. I, I'm busy waiting for his new book to be delivered to my door, a book called Digital Minimalism. Uh, how do I learn? I, um, I find a, a strand of a topic and I just pull on the string and I pull 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 and I pull. And I pull. Uh, so, you know, it's, I, I get curious about lots of things and uh, unfortunately I don't have quite have the, the amount of time that I used to have, uh, but, uh, you know, even in the space alone, there's so much really fascinating stuff that, uh, that you, you can learn so much, not just about, you know, the tech. I, I found the tech, the tech takes you to a point in the conversation, but I, I think there's so much we can learn about ourselves and the way that we interact with each other when you start pulling in those strings. Because everything, I know this is going to sound so esoteric and I'm really sorry, but everything's connected. You know, we're connected to our technology. We're connected to our history. It all kind of winds back into us. It's just everything's kind of about us. And if we can understand ourselves better, you know, we understand the world around us better. Look, we're going to have to uh, – I, I will find my way to South Africa one time, and I will find you, and we will have a beer together, and we'll, we'll finish this conversation properly. But here's what I've, I've heard today. You've given me the idea of a uh, social technologist. Uh, you've outlined culture each strategy uh, for breakfast, and we've talked about a data-driven culture. We've talked about a culture of experimentation, uh, that it's not failure uh, if you're learning – you talked about that our, and this kind of goes to your last statement, uh, that uh, we shape our tools and, and they shape us. Uh, data is, is critical, whether it be cleanliness, having the right corpus of data, access of data, which you term a map of reality, making sure you understand it. You talked about the fact that bias exists and is, is rooted in everything that we do in any data in any model, and, and you need to look at how the, 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 the metrics or the model skewed, skewed overall, just not social biases. Um, you talked about, you know, not to focus on the ROI in terms of how many models are working and how much time is spent, but what we learned and how we, what better business decisions were driven. Um, to get started, you said, hey, look, we just need to start an area and then where, where you start feeling pain, that's how you proceed. Uh, and that intelligence is a feedback loop. And then finally, uh, there's a lot more we could probably get on nedbake.com, but about the innovation that Nedbake is doing, whether it's the API marketplace, ATM, predictive maintenance. And finally, on my bucket list, I've got to get to Kilimanjaro, but more importantly, I've got to get to South Africa, try some of that wine, and get on a safari. Do you? Yeah. Last question for you. Where is the best place to go on safari? So, so I like, I like. I need to try and remember the name. You got me a little bit on the spot. But there's a game. There's a game reserve that's on the border of South Africa and Botswana, and in winter uh, it gets a little cooler. And because it's cooler, the game tends to come out. So I like that reserve uh, in winter. Uh, it's 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 incredible. We we went uh, hunting with a pack of wild dogs there. Uh, they were hunting. I was not. Um, but it's probably one of the most incredible experiences I, I've had in my life. Hunting with wild dogs, so you just like kind of watch it happen, huh? So I, we were on a game drive. So you, you go on, you go on these game drives. You're, you're in a you're in a four by four vehicle. The, the vehicle doesn't tend to have a roof, so you're out in the open. 
and the range, you've got rangers with you, and the rangers are, are trackers, right? So, so they know exactly what's going on. We hit up with this uh, this pack of wild dogs. And what happens is the pack um, that they fan out. So, so suddenly they're running all the same, all, all parallel to each other, maybe 10 meters apart from each other, and they. They, they, they kind of jump through the bushes. And now you're driving through the bushes with them on the back of this 4x4 vehicle, you know, with them, absolutely with them. And they found a, they found a, a young um, wildebeest, which is, is kind of like a gnu. Um, and they, so then they go from this fanned out pack into this much tighter circle, and they start rotating around the, this gnu. Fortunately, well, fortunately, because I didn't want to really want to see it, uh, the gnu got away. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it was just an absolutely incredible experience. Wow! I'm look. I'm going to have to. Uh, I've been wanting to do a safari. It's on the bucket list. I'll get there and I'll take your advice. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us today. This was a fascinating discussion. I appreciate your part- partnership. I appreciate the partnership with Ned Bake. But thanks again for coming on the podcast. It's going to be a great one. Thank you, Al. I had a lot of fun. Thank you, sir. I'll talk to you next time. And for those listening to Making Data Simple, as always, I thank you. And look, give us any feedback that you'd like to like to provide. We take it seriously and we'll make changes accordingly. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple Podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit IBMBigDataHub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, over and out.